you have a culture where allegedly highly educated people have to operate in a way where their every movement could be coded by somebody somewhere as a, as a microaggression of some mm. kind. It's not good. It's not good. And the fact that we university vice chancellors and provosts and deans have sort of sucked at this cup in this kind of holy mission become an alleged anti-racist institutions by condemning whiteness and uh, uh, driving through what a highly illiberal uh, authoritarian cultural corporate cultures is astonishing. It's absolutely astonishing. Coming up on British Thought Leaders, I sit down with Professor Doug Stokes, Director of the Strategy and Security Institute at University of Exeter. Doug talks to us about the recent passing of the Higher Education Freedom Law and what this means for our educational establishments. I don't think universities quite realise what's coming. I don't think they, they I think that, you know, you, you know the uh, Roadrunner cartoon, the Wiley Coyote goes off, off, off the, the hill yeah, and, he's, and he's still running but he's got nothing underneath him. I think, I think a lot of university VCs and leadership teams are, are at that stage. As well as the importance of the West finding courage in today's turbulent world. And if we don't rediscover our sense of self and identity and start to believe in ourselves, we are going to go under. We are going to go under because ultimately any culture and society, if it's going to project itself or, or, or just exist, has to have a degree of self-confidence and a belief in itself. I'm Lee Hall and this is British Thought Leaders. Professor Doug Stokes, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. It's a pleasure to be here. Your new book, uh, Against Decolonisation, Campus Culture and the Decline of the West, is due out in September. For those of us who aren't from the world of academia, could you tell us a bit about these campus culture wars? Well, the book really is about the, uh, the, the, the rise of what I would say and many others say now is the kind of illiberal authoritarianism that we see on British campuses. And in particular, a kind of a particular worldview around decolonising. Uh, and essentially it says it draws on various theories. We can go into those theories if you want to. But kind of postmodern theories about the necessity to ultimately to deconstruct Western civilization, which is seen as fundamentally wrong, bad, evil. I'm obviously paraphrasing here, but I mean, that's some kind of cutting a long story short. And it draws on a very specific history, a very sort of like, I think, a very one sided history. And so, and it draws on, as they sort of Foucault, Derrida, we can talk about those things if you want, but also people like Ibn Said, who talks about Orientalism, and in particular makes uh, kind of claims about knowledge and the role of knowledge and the way in which knowledge cons actively constructs the world. So it's less, if you think about power, it's not about you will power over somebody else, it's more about the way in which discourses and ideological uh, systems socially construct the world. So they almost bring into being, the way you see the world kind of affects the world and brings into being almost. Sort of. so, so the argument ultimately is we need to deconstruct Western narratives, we deconstruct uh, 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 yeah, sort of science, objectivity and truth, which aren't seen as things in and of themselves or, or goods. They're seen as ultimately ideological categories that have been used to oppress people throughout the global south. So those are some of the big claims that they make, and then what they and then what's ultimately happened on British campuses is, especially after the the, the sort of George Floyd killing, 
uh, we've imported a lot of stuff from America, a lot of America's culture wars, pernicious issues around racism, structural racism, and then kind of very sort of uh, also discourses around whiteness and the perfidious and malign nature of whiteness. Um, and then these have been infused by university bureaucracies, taken up by university technocrats in a sort of new alleged anti-racist drive. Uh, and then it's kind of become institutionally hardwired throughout the British uni university system, which has all kinds of ramifications for uh, pluralism, equality, uh, fairness, and academic freedom, essentially. If you think that universities, in an ideal world at least, are the kind of the main drivers of human progress, you know, ideas are germinated and tested and, you know, scientific revolutions and, you know, innovations and stuff like that. So the value bedrock upon which those things take place is uh, is academic freedom, right? Mm -hmm. if, you, if you don't have the capacity uh, to challenge orthodoxy, then you stagnate, you stay still, you don't advance. And so when these ideas have been taken up and, and enforced and pushed down by university bureaucrats onto academics, it has a very strong chilling effect. Yeah, it, it kind of uh, really degrades academic cult campus life it's robbing the students because they're not getting a good exposure to a wide range of theories. It patronizes students uh, and it has all kinds of like illiberal effects in my opinion. So that's kind of the, the sort of snapshot really. And how widespread is this problem? Well, it's massive. If you go to um, uh, Google and you just run a search for um, EDI, for example, Equality, Diversity, Inclusion, or the uh, the anti the sort of the race what's called the race equality charter. Now, the race equality charter is run by an organisation called Advance HE, which gets millions of pounds every year from the British taxpayer, and it runs what's called the race equality charter. And this is like straight up kind of like you know, sort of in intersectional ideology. And by intersectional ideology, when we talk about identity politics or woke wokery and all this kind of stuff, these these essentially code words for a theoretical system called intersectionality. Right. Intersectionality basically is, essentially it says, the individual doesn't matter. What matters ultimately are the immutable identity characteristics of, of groups. So the color of your skin, your sexuality, or your gender, or your self-identification, that kind of thing. And so it places primacy on, on group identities. And so, so, so the race equality charter that's been run by Advance HE so if you go to Google and run a search for the race equality char charter, you'll literally pull up hundreds of universities and they've literally cut and pasted what that says. You know, we need to decolonize the university systems. Universities are fundamentally based on white supremacy. Whiteness is, is ubiquitous across the university system. It has to be deconstructed. Non-white students are being radically di discriminated against. It's, this is all fantasy stuff, by the way. If you look, when you, if you get the book, it comes out in September, it goes over all these arguments, but also all the data. Mm. If you look at our universities, they're incredibly progressive institutions insofar as uh, they're kind of very diverse. So there's, a, there's an over-representation of uh, black and minority ethnic staff and black and minority ethnic students across the university sector. Uh, you know, you look at the incidences of over-racism, they're, they're, they're statistically insignificant. They practically don't exist. So how, so how then do they sort of justify this ubiquitous narrative of white supremacy and racism? They go down, this is where it becomes very illiberal, the path of subjectivity. So it's no longer, you know, 40, 50 years ago, 
you would have had very overt racism, racism perhaps race, racist violence, you know, all that horrible stuff. Okay. Luckily, we managed to drive a lot of that out of our society. Okay. But so now, so now, how do these what, what some people Shelby still calls race grifters? How do these people then justify the money they make to sell these solutions to universities? How do they how do they justify these ideas? They go down the sub subjectivity route. So now it's all about microaggressions. So essentially, you're racist, and this is literally. So they've got so for example, one of the main concepts that's used to to sort of to make the argument that universities are characterised by overt racism is the ubiquitous nature of microaggressions. Mm -hmm. Now, what's a microaggression? In, literally, these are some of the examples that they give. The way you stand, the way you talk. If you raise an eyebrow when you're talking to a non-white student, that can be coded as a racial microaggression. Really? Yeah. So, so you can think about this, right? So that's how far we've gone. Essentially, it's like, it's kind of Orwellian. Hmm. It's, it's policing the way you think, the way you stand, the way you carry yourself, if you raise an eyebrow. Stephen Toop was the former VC at Cambridge. He was, he left under a bit of a cloud for a variety of reasons, not least of which he in introduced an anonymous portal where staff and students could report other staff and students to the university authorities for these racial microaggressions. Essentially, it's so amorphous, so subjective, that everybody's a target. Everybody has a massive target on their back, essentially. And, and therefore, then, it, it can become weaponized by activists. But also, then, what does that introduce to our campuses, whereby you have a culture where allegedly highly educated people have to operate in a way where their every movement could be coded by somebody somewhere as a, as a microaggression of some mm. kind. It's not good. It's not good. And the fact that we university vice chancellors and provosts and deans have sort of supped at this cup in this kind of holy mission to become an alleged anti-racist institutions by condemning whiteness and uh, uh, driving through what a highly illiberal uh, authoritarian cultural corporate cultures is astonishing. It's absolutely astonishing. The Higher Education Freedom Bill was passed recently. Is that going to be an antidote to some of this? Well, I think this is an ongoing debate. So essentially, myself and a handful of others, I think some of whom you may have had in the studio, in fact, and working with various civil society organisations and ministerial teams and special advisors and other organisations, have helped to sort of really push, craft and push this legislation through. And so it's obviously it's a great moment in that's in the sense that we've now got this new high, higher education academic freedom bill. And so and so the so the, it will change ultimately the, the kind of the, the broader regime within which UK universities now need to work. And, and so what it does, it places a positive emphasis and a positive duty on all UK, uh, English and Welsh universities mm. to act, actively promote academic freedom right. uh, and freedom of speech. Now, if we think about it, um, some of the greatest accelerants to human liberation and to human dignity and to human freedom have been freedom of speech, right? Freedom of speech. So this is a great thing in, in terms of uh, re-centering universities back to ultimately where they need to be. 
I think that there will have to be some other elements attached to it. So essentially now, the new, the new bill basically means you act, universities have to actively promote academic freedom mm -hmm. within, their, within their cultures. And essentially, if um, an academic is cancelled or a student's society is cancelled or universities aren't sufficiently promoting academic freedom in their cultures, then there is the capacity for individuals to litigate against universities. And this will be backed up in the Office for Students, which is the big regulatory body of UK, uh, Welsh and English universities, with a new academic freedom director who will oversee this compliance regime. Mm. It's quite top heavy, but like, but that's kind of that's pretty much where we are ultimately. So I would hope that that new regime, that new legal regime and compliance regime, will really switch universities back to pluralism, equality of opportunity, and an emphasis on human dignity. I think there needs to be some more tweaking done now in terms of the kind of guidance that's issued by the, the new director. And I think that we need to really think about how the work that uh, equality, diversity, inclusion teams do in universities, sort of what the data actually says about representation of young men versus young women, what the data shows in terms of the representation of different groups within the universities. And, and really hone down on that and look at equality, make equality the cornerstone of that, quality of opportunity, the genuine data-led equality of opportunity cornerstone of that, and then how that sits as subordinate to a much bigger value of pluralism and academic freedom and open inquiry, basically, because that's ultimately what drives humanity forward. That, that, that's what helps to stop discrimination. That's what helps to open us up. Do you think we're at a turning point for academic freedom with this bill going through? I do. Yeah, I do. I don't think universities quite realise what's coming. I don't think they... they I think that... You know, you, you know the uh, Roadrunner cartoon, and the wily coyote goes off, off, off the, the hill, yeah, it's and, he's, and yeah. he's still running, but he's got nothing underneath him. I think, I think a lot of university VCs and leadership teams are, are at that stage, where the environment will change, and I think that it will be quite a... A strong compliance regime. I hope it will be a strong compliance regime. I don't think it will take that much uh, to swing universities round to defending those kind of values. You're already seeing a lot of VCs now and the university leadership teams coming out and producing their own statements. I think the University of Kent have done that. Uh, Louise Richardson, formerly at Oxford, did some really, really excellent work on that. So I'd like to think that universities would just put their houses in order. But I think that um, with the guidance, um, if they don't, then I, th I mean, in the most extreme cases, you could even see the deregistration of, of some universities. Mm. Uh, I don't think it will come to that. But I do think that universities now, what they need to do is they need to really look at legislation, work out what that, what that means, and put in place uh, their own internal uh, compliance bureaucracy, as much as I hate bureaucracy, and I genuinely hate bureaucracy, I think a lot of it just holds, holds humans back, but, you know, to sort of tweak, tweak the culture and then, and then how they inculcate pluralism, equality of opportunity, free inquiry, and, and the, the sort of the, the, the relentless pursuit of truth. I think that's what they need to do now. Um, so I think, I think they will swing around, but whether it takes some big hi highlight cases uh, to do that and some examples to be made, Maybe, maybe not. I hope not, but that, 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 but that might be the case. But I do think that they need to sort of work it out pretty quick. Are we seeing a kind of change in the, uh, 
world dominance now with the US kind of going down and the, the BRICS countries rising up? Well, we're definitely seeing the rise of, if you want to look at the last 20, 30 years, you've definitely seen the massive rise of East Asia. So a massive success story, ultimately, for humanity has been the rise of East Asia and China in particular uh, in relation to the development of a kind of middle class and much better standard of living. I think if you look at the, just after the Cultural Revolution, China had uh, living standards comparable to sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, you know, tumult, civil war, mm. you know, so that. So there's, there's been a massive rise of China uh, that's the big story, really, and a sort of shift in demographic and economic power to a more multipolar international system, for sure. So if you think, if you want to think about world order, right, so you've got different levels to it. So economically, we're definitely now living in a more multipolar uh, economic world order, where uh, China has become much, more, much stronger, mm -hmm. much more dominant. Although it has elements to it that hold it back quite significant, and we can come on to that if you want in a bit. And so re economically, relatively speaking, the US has kind of declined relative to, to China. There's no doubt about that. But also, but also militarily, like 10 years ago, maybe less so, but, but now we are also seeing the development. I mean, the US is still massively dominant mil militarily. You're seeing that, in, for example, in its support of Ukraine. It is the sort of first among equals amongst numerous security alliances, NATO being the most obvious example mm. in Europe, the US-Japan Security Pact. It has its uh, sort of ambig um, strategic ambig ambiguity towards Taiwan. So, so it still sort of remains very strong, has an incredible uh, yeah, military. I mean, the US does war really, really well. I know you wouldn't you know, say that in relation to Iraq and Afghanistan, but it has incredible capacity. Mm. So, but, but but China is also now developing um, uh, sort of strong capacity too, militarily. Um, so you're definitely seeing uh, a rising China and uh, economically declining US. Um, but, uh, but then there are other factors around that too. So for example, although China's rising qu pretty quick, it also has a number of problems. So I think, you know, one of the most obvious ones is a sort of demographic decline. Uh, right. I think at the moment, the Chinese population is about 1.4 billion. And by 2025, it starts going sort of precipitous decline as a result of the one child uh, policy. So they, I think projected by 2050 is about 700 million. So that's a radical drop in the Chinese population uh, where, you know, you'll have a lot of older Chinese people and not many young Chinese people. Uh, so, so you you have that going on. You then also have a very interesting sort of elements in 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 um, in the Chinese economy. So, for example, there's been East Asian in, in particular tend to save. In the West, we have a very sort of debt orientated uh, economy. In East Asia, they tend to save more. But if you're saving money, you have to put that in somewhere where you're going to make money, right? And so, there's been the kind of various bubbles, in particular, sort of property bubbles in China. So you have these kind of ghost cities that are thrown up. They blow them up, you know, so so that there are kind of some degree of economic contradictions in in China, too. And so so especially after Tiananmen, the deal really was from the CCP is sort of don't rock the boat politically, but we'll look after you economically. And then when China went into WTO in 2001, that really, really took off. It had access to massive markets. 
the West got huge amounts of manufacturing capacity. It's one of the ways we kept inflation so low over here because the Chinese were making these things very cheaply. Um, so you've got, so you got all those things uh, going on. But then also China lives in a very sort of tough neighborhood. If you think about America, so it's got Canada and Mexico, no existential threat there. It's got two massive moats, the Pacific and the Atlantic on either side. Whereas China is a big country, uh, and then it has uh, lots of its goods go out and come in through the sea. So it has strategic issues around its sort of maritime security. Then it has massive land borders, Myanmar and India in particular, Russia even, right? So it has, so if you think about geopolitics, geopolitics is really sort of the ways in which sort of where you're geographically located as a country affects your foreign policy, foreign security policy. So the US doesn't really face any existential threats, whereas China is in a, is in a much rougher neighborhood. I mean, even Vietnam has historically had, I think, about seven wars in the last couple of hundred years with, with China. Uh, Japan, yeah. so so it so it's, it is in a neighborhood. Although it's although it's very economically strong, and it's rising rapidly and it's developing its military capacity, it is in a neighborhood where, as it does that, you've got powerful and rich states around it that are very worried about that and will potentially attempt to balance against China as it does that. So Japan, obviously, the Philippines, uh, South Korea, Taiwan, obviously, Vietnam, India. And, you know, at the moment, they've got a bit of a bromance going on with the Russians. But who knows where that might go? So we're seeing, if we look at the authoritarian powers, Russia, China, they've been courting a lot of the smaller countries for some time and, and getting the votes of the UN and other bodies like that. Do you think we're seeing the kind of age of the authoritarian world superpower developing, like right at the top of the tree? Well, kind of yes and no. I mean... <clears throat> On the one hand, you think about it, right? I mean, what's the what? The one thing that we do have in the West, or we or at least we used to, less so now, but hopefully we can swing it back, is freedom. Freedom's a really important value, right? Uh, and so, although you do have the rise of China, and China will be a, is a, is now a sort of peer competitor of the United States. Be, if you also if you look at China, it's an incredible country. I mean, incredible history. Mm. Uh, its GDP historically, not only is it a, a very old country, millennia old, uh, but its GDP historically has always been incredibly strong. But it was knocked off the perch by, Brit you know, the, to some extent, the British imperialism, the Opium Wars, and that kind of thing. Uh, and that, and that, that is also part of the kind of Chinese nationalist drive. You know, is, is essentially they, China's Chinese nationalism sort of says we're ultimately just assuming our rightful place at the very top of the international system or the, or the world order, essentially. So, you, so you've got that going on. But then, you know, as I say, and whilst you do have um, sort of marriages of convenience, so I did a piece in Unheard on this, I think about six weeks ago, where you're now seeing Russia and China have become very close, right? Um, China's getting a lot of its energy from Russia and they, 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 China and Russia for a long time have, have spoken about sort of they want to see a post-US, post-American, post-unipolar world, world order. Mm. So China is very keen on that because it sees its status naturally as a great power and it sees its current uh, representation with international institutions and international architectures as not commensurate with what it feels it should be. And it's, I guess there is, to some extent, there's some truth to that. 
So you're seeing now, you know, this kind of push by China to sort of balance that. But then having said that, as I said, China is in a very rough neighborhood. It's got a lot of states around it that worry about its rise mm. uh, and can balance, can, will, will be balancing against China. The other thing also is uh, China uh, hasn't had, hasn't been blooded, you know, insofar as I'm, I'm talking about major wars, although mm. it's got incredible technology, right? And uh, it's, do, you know, it's developing all these cutting edge systems. Uh, the, the US, as the, as the first among equals and the, 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 the sort of top military superpower, it's fought loads and loads of wars. So when you're, you know, like the Roman centurions back in the, the Roman Empire, they were constantly bloodied. They were constantly fighting wars. And, and when you have that taking place, a lot of like theory crafting goes out the window. You know, you, you find out pretty quick what works. And when, and when the, the, the rubber hits the road, you then begin to adapt your systems in terms of what works. So although China has kind of got, is developing these incredible, you know, weapons and missiles and stuff like that, you know, it's not actually been bloodied in a major conflict. Mm -hmm. so, it's, it's, so it's like, uh, you know, Mike Tyson, I think, famously said, everybody's got a, pl a plan A until they get punched in the face. So you just don't quite know where that, that, that would swing. Um, so you are seeing these alliances with Russia and China. My take on that is Russia has now been reduced to a vassal state of China. Um, and I think it's, it's convenient for Russia. It's very convenient for, for China. But also Russia doesn't have much choice right now. It's very isolated. Mm -hmm. It needs friends. It needs technology. It's been cut off from so much in the global economy. So it's in a very kind of weak position uh, right now. Terribly weak. If the Ukraine crisis gets wrapped up, uh, if there's a kind of post-Putin uh, regime emerging Russia, likely will still be quite nationalist. Will that regime, after the crisis has gone, still be as happy to be to have to be that in the pocket of the Chinese, especially if the Chinese start to nibble away at parts of Russia? Mm. You know, you've got the Belt and Road Initiative, but also they've got their eyes on, on sort of various parts of Russia. If you look at Russia, it's a massive landmass. You know, the, the east of it is more Asiatic. You know, there's a kind of historical ties, Mongolia, et cetera. So whether, so whether that, that would be a marriage of, it's a marriage of convenience right now, but how long that would last in, 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 in the resolution of Ukraine would remain to be seen. So what's China got? It's got North Korea. It's got a lot of money. You can give money to various states, African states. Here's some, here's you know, hundred billion for you, and there's a, there's, you know, half a billion for your swimming pool and your, and your gold, your gold plates and your, and your mansions. Boom, done, right? But you know how once once those regimes change or once those leaders change, how you know how stable would that necessarily be? There's some um, armchair commentators say that uh, the likes of Putin and Xi Jinping. Um, think the West is a bit weak at the moment because we're too worried about pronouns and all these kinds of things. Do you think that, um, I mean, you're, you're in a better position than most to answer this, that the, our wokeness is kind of uh, affecting our geopolitical fortunes to some degree? I think, I think what, it, what it's doing, right, is it, it's a lot of this stuff about wokery and counter-wokery and identity, uh, it absorbs way too much of our cultural bandwidth. Right. If we think about it on civilizational terms, uh, what's the, what are the big issues here? And uh, the big issues really are about um, 
the rise of China. Not necessarily a bad thing necessarily, you know, but, it, but we have to think about that. If we think that we have an institutional architecture in world order that kind of is still, is, is largely emergent from the Second World War, so Bretton Woods institutions, United Nations, NATO, etc. But in, but in the context of that, you have a, a rising uh, global south, you have states that don't want, you know, want to see, overturn that order. And then, and, and then what, what does that mean for international conflict? So we can sit here and talk about the, you know, but that's the bigger existential stuff going on right now. And, and so uh, I think that uh, a lot of the stuff, I think it's an absolute failure of responsibility that our major cultural institutions like the BBC and others don't cover this more and they do uh pump out what is absolutely in my opinion absolutely sort of cultural garbage and dalliance and most of it by the way is important from america you look at i mean look at our, our race relations look at our attitudes towards race and discrimination i mean it's completely anti-discriminatory norms and laws it's nothing like america uh, I grew up in one of the most multiracial, multicultural uh, uh, parts of London for 25 years. If you go to America, you know, you, you go to, it's quite racially segregated. You, you, you go to a hotel uh, in San Francisco, I did it about 10 years ago in San Francisco, I've go, been there since then, but I'll just give you an example of this. You do a left and it's really poor and it's very black. You do a right and it's, it's much richer and, and very white. It's like, and that, as a kid from Hackney, where it was all, you know, black and white and everything, you know, mm. living together. And, all, and all, all pretty much poor, that was really jarring, right? But that's not. But that we, we shouldn't have imported that stuff over here, and 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 play it out as if as if you know it, that that's our cultural story. It's not our cultural story. So and the fact that the institutions like the BBC that don't ultimately have any democratic um, uh, controls, because they just you know given a massive subsidy, uh, or, or even by the market, there's no democratic. People don't have a choice. They can't just switch it off. They don't want to watch that anymore. It just mm. goes under. Uh, you know, I think that that's, that's a massive failure. So I, think, so I think that, you know, there are big issues around kind of, uh, you know, technology, the rise of AI, geopolitical co competition, changes in world order that really are civilizationally defining and existential. And so all this kind of dalliance and talk, that's why I wrote the book, because it's ultimately it was trying to say, well, this is what the data actually says. This is what it shows. We're in a pretty good place, right? But if we don't get off this culture war stuff, if we don't kind of start thinking about these bigger issues and start to realise that what we've got in the West is pretty unique, it's a pretty, you know, it's an institutional, uh, uh, you know, system in terms of human freedom and human agency and human dignity, it's pretty unique, it's pretty good. People vote with their feet in their millions to come here. To be here, right, from all over the world, right? It's pretty good, and but but that rests on an institutional architecture that's under massive strain and massive creep. And if we don't rediscover our sense of self and identity, and start to believe in ourselves, we are going to go under. We are going to go under because ultimately, any culture and society, if it's going to project itself or, or or just exist, has to have a degree of self confidence and a belief in itself. If it's constantly being deconstructed and pulled apart and endlessly denigrated, you're wrong, you're bad, you're evil, you're immoral, your history's bad. You know, you see what I mean? Mm. You're, de you're dead in the water. 
I mean, if, if it was a story where it's it was a, it's a contested story, well, you know, you say this, but there's, there's there's history as well, or we should look at the future and move together forward. That's that's fine, but but you don't get that. There's there's no absolution. There's no resolution. It's just an endless endless kind of psychodrama of self-flagellation, driven by, uh, in my opinion, idiotic white, often upper upper middle class idiots in our institutions. I'm sorry to say that, but it invariably is very privileged people that don't haven't lived the lives the vast majority of ordinary people in this country have. I mean, you've got privileged academics, right, talking about uh, whiteness and the you know white supremacy, and literally just down the road on council estates, you've got people living in abject poverty. Put your money where you're supposed to be a socialist, right, or a left winger. Put your money where your mouth is. Stop all the jibber jabber on the campuses and the nice pret a mangers and you know the nice classrooms. Go down the road, only only you know, four hundred meters down the road, and go to that council estate, and go and talk to that single mum there with three kids, husband's dead or whatever. Yeah. Don't tell them about their white privilege. It's disgusting, and and unfortunately, I I do honestly think that universities need a massive sharp sharp shock. The way, where they've gone uh, ideologically and uh, the, the kind of casual nature of this stuff is disgusting. You used a line that's been said many times on this show about um, culture imported from America yeah. that's really damaging our society. How do we stop that? I've been thinking about this a lot, right? Because I'm very pro-American. I think America is an incredible country. Yeah, I love America. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's an incredible country, but... I just think that, um, again, it goes back to the failure of our cultural institutions, right? You go back like 30, 40 years ago, you'd, you'd have a really diverse sets of programs, right? Even like to go back to like working class life, all kinds of programs, uh, uh, you know, or, uh, representative, you know, people live up north and Scotland, you know, wherever, right? You, you get a much more sort of diverse and really interesting stuff written. You don't get that now. You don't, it's all very much kind of uh, very metropolitan, London-centric. Um, and on its own, that's, you know, but when that's all that, that's, that's when that's all that there really is, right? And um, so I think that, again, there's been a failure of our, of our, of our uh, cultural institutions to, or even to interrogate. Even if you just forget about um, uh, the woke stuff or Amer importing America's kind of cultural discourse into this country, just the ignorance around even European politics, you know, uh, what's going on in France. I mean, France, French politics is most probably much more relevant for us, uh, especially in a post-Brexit dispensation than American politics in some ways, right? Or what's going on in France. But we don't, you know, we don't even have coverage of that. It's all, it's, we, it's, it's this obsession with America. And then the kind of massive catastrophization that we've got in the British media, uh, especially after Trump's victory in 2016, you had this massive catastrophization. And unfortunately, it is this kind of progressive hegemony, right? And at the heart of this pro pro progressive hegemony is that whenever you have a kind of expression of, 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 of re a rejection of liberal progressivism by uh, majorities, the Brexit vote, for example, it's always seen as somehow indicative of fascism mm. or Nazism, always, right? Uh, and I just think that that is a, so essentially this 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 kind of alleged anti-fascism or the, the the political agency of of ordinary people 
when it's expressed in ways that goes against liberal progressivism, is, is, is characterised as fasc fascistic and therefore can be subject to all kinds of controls, not only castigated as, as, as scum and unreconstructed and all the rest of it, but then other kinds of controls too, from cancellation, etc. So, so I think I think that there needs to be a I think there needs there needs to be a greater democratization of our cultural life, and you're seeing that with channels like this, and other sort of like you know, YouTube you know YouTube channels. I think there's a massive thirst for it too. Uh, so I think there's been a sort of dominance you know in in our cultural institutions, publishing houses, in the BBC and others, where there's been a very specific kind of hegemonic worldview. And I think that that isn't particularly democratic or representative or diverse. It's very undiverse. Professor Doug Sykes, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Thank you very much. Thank you.